I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations. And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist. You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world. Welcome to this incredible episode with human rights expert Aret van Heerden. He's a good friend of the EFI, Simone. He's an excellent friend of the EFI and not only a friend, but he's the person who enabled us to create our own code of conduct on labor and, to ena- and who enabled us to be sure that in our supply chain we respect international labor law and human rights law. So he's been a fundamental supporter of the EFI movement. I'm going to push the boat out and say he's my hero. He is indeed. He's also my hero because he has a personal history of engagement from, for human rights. He paid in his own life for, for his engagement. He's been always coherent and consistent with his ideals. What I love so much about this conversation is that Aret has a special talent for decoding extremely heavy topics and making them accessible. So I think you're going to learn a lot from this one. Indeed, he's very clear and articulate when he speaks and he has an incredible first-hand experience in the field of human rights, labor law, and direct experience in different moments of his life. So what you hear is the voice of a person who knows very well uh, theory and literature, but who also put this into practice throughout his own life. And the heads of really big companies listen to Aret, right? Absolutely. He's a guru. Welcome to the Ethical Fashion Podcast, Oret van Heerden. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Before we get into human rights and fashion supply chains, I'm just going to ask, how did you two meet Simone? Do you remember? I think we met in Geneva, but immediately after we met in Kenya, in, uh, in, uh, in Islam, in an urban slum of Nairobi. Do I remember correctly, Oret? You do, you do. And it was many years ago, eh? What, some, it was in the noughts, I believe. I think so, yes, yes. And yeah. I think, it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then you invited us to a Fair Labor Association meeting in Texas, I think in Austin, Texas. That's with correct. a lot of big players of this industry. And you immediately changed our lives by uh, putting down clearly what is labor discipline and by enabling us to have a proper fair labor agenda. Aret, what were your first impressions of Simone when you met him? So it struck me as disruptive with a capital D. Wow. He was working in a UN agency trying to promote trade and he was aware that social and environmental sustainability was critical to that. And he was a good 10 years ahead of his time. And I thought to myself, either this guy's going to get fired or he's going to remake this organization. He's still here. <laughs> yeah, the, the, it, to tell the truth, somebody also tried to do that, but I, I was able to stay. <laughs> and you have done this much before than me in the UN to disrupt and introduce an ethical agenda and other things on trade, but we'll speak about this today. 
We will. (laughs) (laughs) You're a labor rights expert. You're the founder and CEO of Equiception, a consultancy that specializes in sustainable supply chains. But you've been working with and advising the EFI for many years. As you know, this series of our podcast is focused on ESG. But I thought we might start there with the S part. What does it mean, the social side to you, Arat? It hinges or it revolves around dignity. The question of ensuring that people are able to maintain and even achieve dignity through the way we work together. Mm, I love that you use the word dignity. I mean, the social word feels so wafty, doesn't it? I don't know. Dignity is a really important concept, which it's, we don't use enough. It's the key right? word. Dignity yeah. is the key word when you speak, when you speak about labor. Isn't it so, Oret? Exactly. That's what human rights are. It is exactly. that we have our basic human dignity in all aspects of our lives. And they are universal in the sense that every human being is entitled to them for the simple fact to be on the planet. Isn't it so? Exactly. I know that you were the president and CEO of the Fair Labor Association from 2001 to 2013. If listeners don't know what that is, just, just fill us in. There have been a lot of controversies in global supply chains, global value chains, particularly starting in the 1990s as free trade developed, trade barriers came down, and companies tended to put together, cobble together, very long and complex value chains. And frankly, they had very little knowledge and understanding about what was going on down those chains. And so as abuses and scandals started to come to light, child labor in Bangladesh or in India, um, modern forms of slavery, trafficking of people. Companies were caught out. They had to admit that they didn't know what was going on and that they were unable to prevent these problems. And so concern grew, in fact, Urgence, a sense of urgency grew in the human rights community. And eventually, President Clinton convened a meeting at the White House after cases of slavery on the continental USA. And he called the industry, the big brands, the trade unions, the Labor Department, um, human rights NGOs, and he got them all in the room and he said, asked, what's going on here? It's 1997. How come we are still experiencing these kinds of forms of exploitation and abuse? And companies argued that they weren't responsible because they did not own or control Mm. suppliers in their supply chain. Well, they're still doing that. (laughs) Exactly. Everyone else in the room said, look, you guys control the price. You control the delivery date you control the quality, surely you could control whether children or slaves are involved in the production. So the question, the discussion moved to a more technical level. If the companies were willing to assume some of the responsibility, how would they operationalize that? And that's where I got involved. I was brought in from the ILO And we started to, as a White House task force, to work on the challenge of mapping your supply chain, having up-to-date relevant information on the conditions in those 
various moving parts and then being able to use your commercial leverage to ensure that all of your partners and suppliers respect basic human rights. May I just ask what was happening in the US news breaking? What was that? There was a famous case called El Monte in California where I believe it was 66 Thai slaves were literally found imprisoned in a garment factory. And there were other cases in agriculture. And finally, there were cases in Madison Square Garden. Really? At at that point, you know, um, concern was really, really rising. And there's a famous media TV personality called Kathy Lee Gifford. And she had developed a brand around her name being manufactured in Madison Square Garden and in Central America. And cases of child labor, modern forms of slavery were emerging in her supply chain. And of course, that just created a, you know, a major media event that really focused people's minds on this. I remember Kathy Lee Gifford. Absolutely. I isn't it interesting it that... Yes. But isn't it interesting that when a big name is involved, whether it's a big name company or a celebrity endorsed line, then everybody takes notice. I just think that's, I mean, maybe it's human nature. It's absolutely true. It gives visibility to the problem. And that was the case. Aurit is absolutely right. And talking about international labor law, you come from ILO professionally many years ago. You were part of that organization. We all know the importance of uh, ILO fundamental principles in uh, international labor law and uh, no no child labor, no forced labor, freedom of association and collective bargaining, no discrimination. Now, what shocks me is that some of the conventions that embed them, such as those on freedom of association and collective bargaining, for instance, have a very low rate of ratification still today. Why is that so? So countries come into the ILO with their own histories, right, their own trajectories. And in many of the countries, the, there is a history of uh, defensiveness towards workers' organization. And uh, they've, made, they've created all kinds of obstacles to organizing workers, getting your organization recognized and protected by the law, getting your forms of action protected. And so unfortunately, there's still a lot of unevenness, shall we say, in within the, uh, the membership, the member states of the ILO. The same thing goes for discrimination, for example. Uh, there are different views yes. of discrimination. And yes. even when countries ratify these conventions, I have to say that application remains a moving target. A difficult target to be achieved. So it's more important than ever to have them ratified and applied, enforced uh, through national legislation and enforcement. Absolutely true. What is the role then of human rights due diligence in ensuring that international labor law is respected and that decent working conditions actually end up being offered to everybody? So I'll give you a good example of that. In my ILO work, I was covering export processing zones. These are the production, literally the production sites for so much of our fashion product, right? And I was visiting the export processing zone in Sri Lanka. And the government explained to me that the foreign investors were not paying social security contributions. And I asked them, well, 
why don't your labor inspectors crack down on this? They admitted that they had too few inspectors with too few resources. Sometimes they couldn't even travel to these export processing zones. But worse, the investors were too powerful. Oh, no. They were blowing off the inspectors. Hmm. While we were having this conversation, a Nike inspector arrived. And I happened to communicate this concern to them. I said, are you doing your due diligence on this question of social security contributions? Are you aware that your suppliers may not be paying these contributions? Nike called their suppliers together and said, if any one of you does not pay your social security contributions, we will drop you from our supply chain. And boom. Paid. So the brand has the power. You can make a change, but you have to have the will to do it. And that's when I realized the most powerful institution in the global value chains of this era of globalization is the multinational brand. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, uh, all this conversation around uh, labor, rights labor rights comes down to people, to the inherent dignity of every human being, as we said at the very beginning. This is why there are so many commitments and things. But why don't we see more concrete progress on a global scale in this industry? At the end of the day, now, uh, you see a new drive on sustainability, but you see a, a clear prevalence of environmental issues around sustainability, more than the social issue, the labor issue, and, and the, the world, the international institutions and so on, started many years ago dealing with them. At the end of the day, the ILO is the most uh, ancient uh, uh, or international organization of among the ones that survived today. Uh, it started, it was created just after the First World War. Why still we don't see clear progress on this in the world of today and in this industry, in your opinion? It is hard. Social issues are hard. There's no one actor which holds all the levers, right? So the multinational company, the local employer, the international organizations, the local regulatory or enforcement agencies, local civil society, local media, international media, they all have their role to play. So what I think the name of the game in order to achieve and maintain progress, and I stress the maintain because we've seen progress get undone quite quickly, Yes. The key is to get some kind of coalition or alliance between all of those actors that I just mentioned. Not, none of them can do this on their own. Protecting and maintaining respect for human rights is a team sport, really is. And it includes the local workers and the local communities because if they don't have voice, we're missing an absolutely crucial element in the, that protective network. This is why the UN, in the UN general principles on how to apply human rights to business, recommend always consultation with stakeholders. Right. And then, you know, beyond that, it's harder to measure progress on the social issues than it is on some of the environmental issues. So this has created something of a sort of, uh, you know, um, 
the path of least resistance, right? The environmental sustainability seemed to be easier to do um, and to report than the social sustainability. I have questions around morality, actually, because while I was listening to you speak there, I was thinking you have to want to do it and not everybody wants to do it. And when Simone says, well, people are at the core of this, we have to remember that human nature isn't necessarily always altruistic. Maybe maybe it's not in your interests to do the right thing. We're going to come on to that. But I want to ask you first, Ira, about um, something that I saw you say in one of the Ethical Fashion Initiative designer accelerator masterclasses and apparently also say this to companies who've been doing this for decades but you said I have a question do you have any idea do you have a date from when you will no longer be able to make the product you make now because of a sustainability issue I mean wow great question it's a killer question confronting confronting indeed talk about that so if you're the CEO or any manager or even an investor in an enterprise, you need to be aware of the material risks that your enterprise faces, right? And you should be looking ahead, trying to foresee those and take prudent measures in order to be able to mitigate or prevent or avoid those risks harming your enterprise. So it seems to me that a very basic question which should come up early in that conversation is where are my key inputs coming from and how how much runway do I have? How abundant are they? How long will they last? So like materials or? Right, both nat- natural and human resources because both are actually scarce, okay? Um, so if you're making sneakers, you know, there's rubber, there's leather, there's a lot of water and energy and there are chemicals and glues and all sorts of other things that you're making. So I'd want to see a list of those. And I'd ask my, my procurement and supply chain managers to say, tell me where you get this stuff. How much of it have we got? How long is it going to last? And as soon as you start to engage in that exercise, you realize, wow, a number of these things are actually pretty scarce and they're getting scarcer by the day. And with scarcity comes cost. They become more expensive. And we might not be able to make the sneaker or this pair of jeans or whatever it is the way we do it now, you know. But the amazing thing was that the more people are asked the question to, the more I realized they're avoiding it. They're simply not looking down the road. And it also goes for labor. You know, we, in the early 2000s, we started to see labor shortages in China, which officially had a 90 million surplus of workers who should have been looking for jobs, but they were refusing to work in garment factories. And companies weren't asking themselves, why not? You know, is there an exhaustible, inexhaustible pool of labor in China or India or Africa or not. And now that, you know, companies are rushing into Africa because they think the demographics are great, right? Abundant young labor force. They're in for a big, big surprise. They are in for a big surprise indeed. We always speak in between us and in general about uh, 
the value chain of this industry and the fact that it is a, a zero-sum value chain where you have only winners and losers, where you cannot have co-winners. Tell us more, tell our listeners, listeners more about that already. It became obvious maybe 20, 25 years ago that a lot of the human rights abuses in value chains were being provoked by the sourcing strategies of the buyers. I'm thinking extremely short lead times, constantly shorter lead times, which force suppliers to work massive amounts of overtime. Suppliers who incidentally often face disruption, right? They've got everything from floods to strikes to cope with. And those disruptions are not accommodated by the buyer. The buyer's got a delivery date, the ship is gonna sail. And so you have to work as much overtime as you can to make sure you meet that deadline. And that overtime has got to be paid at a premium rate. So that's going to break the budget. So suppliers were forced to just violate more and more basic human rights in the way they produced in order to meet these unbelievably competitive standards which were being imposed in a unilateral fashion on the supplier. One buyer who I spoke to about this confidentially, gave me an example. He said, I went out to place an order for an item which should have a unit price of two euros. So when I got there, I opened the negotiations by suggesting one euro. And to my surprise, the supplier agreed to my price. I expected him to respond three euros and we could settle on two, which would have been the fair price. Instead, he accepted my one euro offer. And I left and I thought to myself, this is crazy. I know he will have to cheat in order to make that price. He will cheat on materials, he will cheat on labor, he will cheat on everything he can. There's no way he can do it for one euro. So I, the buyer explained to me, got back to his office and he said to his colleagues, I've just done a very stupid thing. I accepted an unrealistic price from the supplier and I'm feeling terrible about it. And his colleagues all said to him, are you crazy? Let's go out and celebrate. You just made a killing. And so the guy realized the system is broken. We've got a system of transactional sourcing, transactional relationships where we are driving suppliers to break the law, to violate human rights, and ultimately we will drive them out of business. Mm, no partnership there. No partnership. I had a similar encounter with a, a really, really smart sourcing director, global sourcing director of a major, major enterprise. And he said to his buyers, I was in a meeting where he said to his buyers, we are going to stop driving for the lowest price because that strategy is finite. We squeeze cents out of the contract until we force our suppliers into bankruptcy. Said from now on, I want you to study the business of your suppliers, understand it better than they do, and unlock value. There is a huge amount of value locked up in those suppliers because of inefficiencies, unproductive, dysfunctional activity. And you need to be unlocking that value. And that has no 
beginning yet. The upside to that is infinite. You can keep adding value. And just think of how much more good you will do in the process. And he asked his, his buyers, he said, how much more rewarding will that be to help your suppliers grow rather than to be systematically suffocating and ultimately killing off your suppliers? How did COVID, the pandemic, impact on this value chain? We already see a lot of changes. Shall we talk a bit about them? I think it's an excellent example of just how broken the global sourcing system and supply chain management system is. And also an incredible example of how interconnected and interdependent we are. Because suppliers have been, I don't want to say complaining about this, they've been screeching about this for years now right? We depend on each other. I depend on suppliers, raw material suppliers, intermediate goods suppliers. I'm making product for you. You depend on me. We all depend on the consumer. But somehow those dependencies had been obscured in this um, zero-sum game sourcing model. And COVID has put them into the light in, exactly. in, in an implacable way. Exactly. So it revealed our lack of due diligence, our lack of foresight, right? We weren't controlling for these risks. We should have been. Pandemics, experts have been warning us of pandemics for years, ever since SARS, right? And yet we stopped controlling for those risks. SARS showed us just how quickly over-dependence on one country could catch you out. It showed just how fragile the logistics networks were. And we didn't learn any of the lessons. Um, also, our systems of communication and consultation had been, bro been broken, right? They'd become unilateral emails, right? We weren't having a two-way conversation. And when COVID hit, we didn't sit down together and say, how are we going to solve our mutual problem? Once again, the brands adopted a unilateral approach. They said, we're invoking force majeure and we're not going to pay you. We're not going to do all sorts of things. There were very few brands who sat down with their suppliers and said, look, we've got a shared problem here. Are there any ways we could work together to get this product made and get it delivered? Let me ask you, Orit, one question going deeper into uh, a shame of the world of today and even of this of the supply chain of the industry we are talking about we know that modern slavery is something that exists slavery is still present in some forms in some terrible forms in the world of today and we cannot exclude uh, uh, that is absolutely absent from the value chain from the supply chain of this industry too why, why, what is modern slavery? What are the features of slavery today? How could we find slavery in the supply chain of this industry? And, and I wanted to, to ask as well, I mean, you had earlier invoked the idea of forced labor and modern slavery in US supply chains, but this idea of it being next door, that's what makes people sit up and take notice. They go, not in Madison Square Garden, mm -hmm. but actually it's, it's, 
I mean, what's what are the numbers? 40 million people trapped in modern slavery worldwide. Even if 15 million of those are enforced marriage, bonded labor is obviously enormous child bonded labor. It's yeah. in the fashion supply chain. We know it's in the cotton. We're hearing all the stuff around the Uyghurs. But people tend to think of this as a distant, impossible, but also distant thing that couldn't possibly be anything connected to us, no, not intimately, right? Of your it's not factory. right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. People don't think that. So the formal definition of slavery is when the somebody has been bought, okay, there's been a purchase price paid, and the buyer now owns that human being and can then make that human being work without paying them, for example. Modern form of slavery, the term modern forms of slavery emerged because people realized that there are nuances or there are a whole series of shades to that, right? So you can have somebody who is so dependent on you that even though you haven't bought them, they cannot leave. You can underpay them, you cannot pay them, and they cannot leave, right? They their, their, their vulnerability is such, and that vulnerability could be economic, it could be social, it could be a, a combination of multiple factors, but they're in a situation of such precarity that they are forced to assume abominable behavior, right? It could be harassment and abuse, it could be literally being chained up, being unable to leave the premises. Uh, at night, it could be, you know, your inability to even communicate with your family or your, your loved ones and so on. So we've now got this kind of omnibus concept of uh, modern forms of slavery. And I would say that the estimates of it are grossly underestimated. <gasps> would you? For the simple reason that the slaves or the people who are trapped in this form of slavery often have no incentive to speak out and no incentive to inform anybody because they they fear being deported or being punished even more than their current situation, right? So we've seen this often with our social auditors going to facilities and the the, the slaves not being willing to, to, to acknowledge or to, to, to signal that they are slaves because they know that that could probably lead to immediately to them being rounded up and deported to a possibly worse situation. Because m many of them are also migrant workers, aren't they? Exactly. exactly. So frankly, we've got a situation, a global market for labor now, which is very, very badly regulated. And where people are seeping out of labor markets where there are very few opportunities, and managing to seep into, like water, into labor markets where there are more opportunities. And there, unfortunately, are willing buyers for that labor. So just like with corruption, it always takes two to produce that violation. It's same with modern forms of slavery. The buyers of the labor are really, really culpable here just quickly, and I know there's no quick fix, but just top line, what should companies be doing to ensure that they are doing the very best they can to ensure that modern slavery is not tainting their supply chain back through the tiers? Right. So understanding labor market dynamics is the first thing. The, the due diligence should start at a national level, looking across your supply chain and saying, which of these countries 
have labor markets which would lend themselves to modern forms of slavery or trafficking or forced labor. And those would be particularly labor markets which are tight, where there's a shortage of labor, which would be attracting people from other countries. Um, the more repressive those countries are, the more hidden this problem will be, right? But take the UK. Just ask yourself, how many people in the UK want to pick fruit and vegetables, you know, at 5 a.m. in the morning till 9 o'clock at night? Or in southern Italy, how many people want to do that kind of backbreaking work? You don't need sophisticated econometric analysis to tell you not many, you know, local citizens are willing to do that work. So I have a risk of modern slavery. If I'm importing tomatoes, if I'm importing any product of tomatoes or of, uh, you know, fashion goods, would the locals be willing to do that job or not? But may, may I ask another question? Because I think if you're listening to this and you work for a brand or you are even a customer who is buying a product, modern slavery will horrify you and you want to make sure that you're nowhere near it and you're doing the best you can. But oh, I mean, I'm thinking about, I was going to say before you invoked Western Europe as a hotbed of potential modern slavery when conditions are ripe for it. I was going to say, do we just pull out of countries where we know there is a big risk, like I'm thinking about the cotton supply chain. Is that a reasonable choice? What does that mean then for the people who are good actors within those countries trying to do the right thing? It's so complicated. I, I guess um, I guess my question is from the listener, help, what on earth do we do? Where do we begin? So I grew up under sanctions, under UN sanctions. Okay, I grew up in apartheid South Africa at a time when the whole world was united in condemning that practice of institutionalized racial discrimination. And the UN had placed South Africa under sanctions. As what I noticed as we started to organize against the apartheid state was that the bad guys were able to get what they needed from other bad guys. South Africa built an atomic bomb while under a UN arms embargo. It got oil, all the oil it needed under a UN oil embargo. But the good guys were struggling to get what they needed. Okay. So we developed a, a slogan, a campaign slogan, boycott apartheid, but show solidarity with the people opposing apartheid. And that solidarity could take many different forms. It didn't necessarily involve violating the sanctions. You know, there were forms of moral support. There were forms of material support. Um, I started NGOs. I started trade unions under that system. And, you know, so solidarity activists brought us at great risk to themselves, huge amounts of support. That's what's needed. Take Russia right now. Obviously, you need to boycott the government, but you need to support the opponents, you know, every way you can. Yes, absolutely. And, and you, give, you give us the possibility to ask you more about your younger life. You, you had a role, a precise role in the struggle, in the fight against apartheid in South Africa. You were the leader of the Af South African Student uh, Union. Uh, 
would, would you tell us about that, about your former role and what you did, uh, about that period of your life, if you want, Auret? I don't want to, to be indiscreet. Up to you to say, to, 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 to answer this question, if you want, if you feel about doing it. It's a very pertinent question, Simone, because we face, as a people, as a internationally, globally, we face existential crises right now, existential threats. Yes. And that's what we felt we faced in South Africa at the time. I'm talking about the early 1970s. Yes. The leaders of the liberation movement, Nelson Mandela and people like that, had been imprisoned. Uh, their, even their successors had been imprisoned. And I got to university at a time of political vacuum. The opposition movement had been severely suppressed. And as students, we, we had the great privilege of being able to study our situation, examine our situation, debate it. And we realized that there was an, a moral imperative, ethical imperative to fight the system and to pick up the banner that Mandela and others had, had lit, the torch that they had lit. And as we started to do that, we faced this black and white students. We faced serious, serious repression from the, you know, people were being shot. Death squads were assassinating people. We were subject to solid detention without trial, solitary confinement and, and torture. And so as 22, 23 year old students, we realized even younger, there were students in Soweto who were 16 and 17 who were standing up against apartheid. And we realized that we had to be really serious about what we believed in. This, you know, you, we couldn't assume this responsibility if we weren't willing to see it through to the end. And so we learned how to organize. We learned how to persuade people. We learned our parents were opposed to this, right? Black and white parents, they were scared for us. We had to argue with our parents. We had to argue with our teachers. Um, we had to argue with our fellow students who were unconvinced or scared, who were skeptical, who were deniers. There were lots of apartheid deniers, just as there are climate skeptics today. And we had to learn how to work across those, those fears and beliefs. And it taught us a huge amount about organizing and changing, bringing about behavior change, ultimately bringing about societal change. And so I, I think of the, of, of the youth of today faced with these existential crises, faced with the, you know, unbelievable challenges, um, li literally life and death challenges. And I, I so badly want to share our, our experience with them, our learning, I, you know, the, the, the lessons we learned the hard way, because we made lots of mistakes as well. Um, but there were so many inspiring stories from that time that I would love to be able to share with young people today as they think about how to organize, how to mobilize, how to change society. That would be absolutely important. I remember when uh, the phenomenon Greta Thunberg uh, came out on the press, we had a conversation, me and you, and we said, listen, this person is great. She's, uh, the, she, she has been capable of mobilizing the consciences of the youngest generations before 
all the commentators on newspapers and media were saying that young people are not engaged, the young people are not about engagement. Then so, Greta came and she revealed that the young people were thirsty of engagement, of social engagement, of engagement for change. And, uh, and, and I think the experience of people of your generation in South Africa is really pertinent to the world of today. You can bring about change through social engagement, through uh, also active pacifism, but also engagement in fighting the right battles. And this also takes us to another point that the moral dimension of life is always present. And it's present also in our work, in our work, even in this fashion industry. People, I remember, laughed when we called our program the Ethical Fashion Initiative. What's morals, ethics and fashion? But if fashion is part of life, there's a morality also in how you manage and produce fashion, isn't it so? Absolutely. And personal role models, personal inspirators, you know, personal mentors are so important in that process. I, I will share with you that there was a moment in my torture where I concluded that I was going to die that night. That was, that we were locked into a path of torture, which I looked down the path and I saw, okay, this, I, I'm going to die on this floor tonight. And I thought to myself, I, I, how am I going to avoid breaking? Because I knew there was a way out, right? I could confess. I yes. could tell the police what they wanted to yes. hear. And this thing, yes. this, this looming impending... It was a way out. It was a way to life. Yeah. So I thought to myself, I need something to stop me breaking. Okay. And I thought of Nelson Mandela. I thought of the principles of the liberation struggle. And it didn't help. It was just too abstract. Okay. Yes. And I was desperate, I was dying, I was sinking. And suddenly I thought to myself, how will I look my friends in the eye? And I thought of people really close to me, you know, my brother. And I thought, how will I look him in the eye if I break? And then I knew that you couldn't break. I couldn't break. I could die tonight. And I concluded, okay. If I die tonight, I die tonight. The personal connection, the human connection gave you the strength to do, to, to accept this extremely tough and almost impossible decision. Just the human connection. Yeah. So, you know, your, your model, Simone, your example is so important. You know, well, Aurek, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's your example Lord, that is important. You, you inspire this whole movement of ethical fashion. And people see your commitment and they think that is something I can follow. That is something I can hold on to. In, in reality, we are able to inspire because we, we got to know you. When you arrived in Kenya, we were at the very beginning with this idea to disrupt this industry and to bring about ethics and so on. But we didn't know what was the direction. You supplied the direction. Wow. So you are the guide of this movement, my dear Oret. You cannot put aside this responsibility. It's no. thanks to you, not thanks no, to us. Because <laughs> I saw how you went into those slums, hmm. used your connections there to get into areas which, where you know, literally white men could not go, and you made connections, human connections, with people who were suffering in those slums, and you committed to work with them, to help them. And I said to myself, 
if he's willing to take those risks, I'm willing to take those risks. Well, we were reassured by the fact that you were there and you were guiding us and providing us a clear path. And then the person who allowed us to do this in that slum was a missionary of those days, a person, a very humble man, whose name was Gino Filippini. Uh, we owe it to, to him. Yeah. So he blazed that path. You followed it and we follow you. And you helped a lot. <laughs> Let me ask you, Arep, before you said you wished that you could share some of those lessons with today's young activists. What advice would you give? What are some of the lessons that you learnt in your movement building and in particularly when it comes to organising? So whatever your audience is, whatever your cohort is, the population you want to mobilise and organise and change behaviour, start with where they are at, not with where you are at. So we have preoccupations about climate, we have preoccupation, preoccupations about society, about human rights, ethics, so on. A lot of the people we would need to be reaching are worried about much more immediate, practical things than that. They literally don't have the time, the space, the oxygen to be worried about the things we are privileged to see and understand. And so I see far too many activists and organizations talking to themselves. They're talking, they're, they're issuing appeals, they're issuing demands which reflect their level of awareness and consciousness. You know, consciousness is a, is a journey, right? And we have to be able to connect with people and resonate with people at their current level of consciousness. So that probably doesn't mean starting with the demand you want to arrive at, you want to reach. You know, it means starting somewhere far more practical. And we've got the, the data we need. We've got the social media conversations. You know, we can just look into those and understand what are people talking about? What are they worried about? Um, unfortunately, our societies, many of our societies are dominated by elites. And I think the gap between elites and I don't want real people is very great. And it's growing, it's growing. And even NGOs, trade union leaders, academics, UN officials, we get trapped in elite circuits, networks, bubbles. And it's hard, you know, we just don't have enough contact with real people and their issues. Um, take Greta Thunberg, you know, I've, I've, I've studied the social media, I've looked at her impact and I've seen when it spikes, but where it spikes. And, you know, there are a billion young people in Africa who need, we need to be reaching, that's our future. You know, China and India, half the Earth's population at the moment. Are we reaching those people? Uh, do their aspirations match our aspirations? Do they all want a car, an air conditioner, a fridge, and a stove? You know, burning fossil fuels. Um, how do we persuade them they can't have that? How on earth do we, you know, convince a billion African kids that they shouldn't be aspiring to have those things we all had? And if we can't communicate with them on their issues, we're not going to get anywhere. 
So you've put in there a very serious lesson and invite to our soul, get out of the bubble, get in touch with real people, create bridges, create dialogue, our it. We don't want to lose hope, do we? No. No. <laughs> hope, whatever it costs. I think that should be our final question about where you find hope, Aret. So I find hope in other people who are confronting these issues, who are taking tough decisions, committing to, to make change. I find hope in people who are incredible communicators and can talk to people who don't agree with them, can talk with, to people who are not aware of what of the same issues, who don't share the same aspirations, who can talk to people who have got, you know, life experiences which make us, which humble us, right? Um, and who can do that with humility and empathy and compassion. That gives me hope. I, I draw hope from people who can put together practical solutions. You know, Ethical Fashion Initiative has been an example of that, of being able to actually go into really, really deprived areas and marshal resources and help people to organize, to work, to achieve dignity through work, um, to preserve artisan crafts, to preserve noble materials, to unlock the creativity that people have in working with those materials. That gives me hope. You know? um, so I'm, I'm by no means, I'm, I'm painfully aware of the challenge, but I'm by no means pessimistic. Pessimism and optimism, I think, are two equally unsustainable yeah. <laughs> uh, states of mind. I'm a realist, but I see stuff happening in the, you know, that, that gives me hope. You give me hope, Arat. This was amazing. That's You're the greatest podcast interview of all time. I think we should give them a round of applause. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening, my friends. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion.